Welcome back to Reason and Theology, everyone. Your host, Michael. We are here on a Wednesday afternoon reviewing a video joined by Brian Mercier from Catholic Truth. We did a video before where we reviewed Ray Comfort. Now we are going to review uh, two Protestants that um, I know one of them at least is a former Catholic, but maybe even the other. I don't know. It's Mike Gendron. He's a former Catholic. And then it's also uh, Justin Peters. I don't yeah, know if he's wife a former form, His wife is a former Catholic of like 35 years. I've seen him around before. Okay. So tell us a little bit about this video that we're going to review. Yeah, so uh, Mike Gendron said that he uh, left the Catholic Church when he, quote, read the Bible and, you know, opened God's word and saw the truth for what it really is. Mm -hmm. And then he shared that truth with some Catholics at his house once he found Jesus, quote unquote. And then uh, he realized that within, I think it was a year, he had 17 Catholics leave the Catholic faith and find Jesus, so-called. And so then that is what started his ministry of reaching out to Catholics. And so he has a full-time ministry that reaches Catholics and tries to take them out of the church and help them to find the real truth when it's a real sad fact that he himself has been deceived, didn't fully understand what he believed before he left. And now he travels around talking about Catholicism and Jesus Christ. Yeah. Okay. Wow. So let me pull up my screen and I will put I will say that he's better than a lot of uh, ex-Catholics, most ex-Catholics. He's better than a lot of anti-Catholics because he does try to make an attempt on getting the truth correct. Like he doesn't just completely misrepresent the Catholic faith as many do. You know, he has a lot of it correct, but he has a lot of misconceptions as well. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're going to start around the 2 minute 44 second timestamp, play a clip, and then we are going to review it. Uh, I think this is going to be about a 25 second clip. So let's, let's go ahead and begin here. By the way, let me know if the audio for the video is not loud enough for, for you or anyone who's in the chat. Let me know on your end if it's not sure. loud enough. I have her life, but... Uh, so God graciously saved Mike Gendron out of Roman Catholicism. He was steeped in Roman Catholicism, and uh, Mike attended uh, uh, an evangelical conference, and God used the truth that was presented there to prick his heart and begin to open his eyes to the deception that is the Roman Catholic Church and Roman Catholicism. And then in 1988, about seven years after that, Mike enrolled in Dallas Theological Seminary to continue his studies at a more academic level. And uh, now Mike and his wife Jane are both involved in ministry. Of course, Mike is the only one who preaches and teaches, uh, at least in the public sense. But um, God has opened up a, a ministry of evangelism to Mike. And I tell people often that um, Mike Gendron is to Roman Catholicism what I am to Word of Faith, in a sense. And uh, Mike, had, Mike and his wife, Jane, both have a passion for uh, presenting the truth and seeing God deliver people out of the deception that is Roman Catholicism. Oh, the deception that is Roman Catholicism. Yeah, not sure how helpful that kind of stuff is. I mean, because I think that Catholics could just turn the tables and say the exact same thing, right? That there's some deceptive elements to Protestantism. And so I think that, you know, to me, it kind of 
poisons the well when we go that approach. But what do you think? I think these guys are sincere. I think they mm -hmm. really mean well. I think they really do want to help Catholics. I really do think they think Catholics are deceived. But especially this gentleman who was just speaking, he doesn't really understand Catholicism as much as uh, Mike does. But, you know, to say that, oh, well, he found the word, he opened up the Bible and then discovered Roman Catholicism was false. Really? How did he do that, I wonder? You know, who mm -hmm. whose interpretation of the Bible did he listen to to figure that out? Because, mm -hmm. you know, it was the Catholic Church that put the Bible together 1,600 years ago. And if we study the earliest Christians, I mean, it doesn't match up to what Mike's teaching today. It matches up to what Catholics teach today. Well, that's what they often have to do is they have to assume a canon and they have to assume a particular interpretation of scripture. And those are the big concerns that I have with Protestantism. I've never seen a cogent approach or argument for the Protestant canon. So already it's a non-starter because they want to appeal to scripture, but then we can't determine the parameters of what constitutes scripture. And then once we've somehow established a canon, which they don't pass that qualification, but somehow if they did, um, where, or how do we, we identify the proper interpretation? Um, what is it within the pale of orthodoxy concerning interpretation of scripture and what would be heterodox? And at the end of the day, it boils down to, I think, in my opinion, this is heretical. This is heterodox. It's effectively what it boils down to. Now, I'm not saying that none of us use subjective interpretation when it comes to Scripture. We certainly do. Um, and I'm not even saying that we don't use subjective interpretation in considering whether or not the Catholic Church is established by Christ. But I will say, once you've established the Catholic claims and accepted them, you now enter into a realm where you do now have an objective magisterium that can definitively settle theological disputes, whereas Protestants remain in that realm of subjectivity and can never come back and ask Scripture for further clarification. Hey, St. Paul, did you mean this by justification? They can't ask that to any kind of authoritative magisterium because they don't have one. And of course, scripture is not going to answer them. Um, so it's ultimately going to boil down to what they think the Holy Spirit is leading them to conclude from scripture. Um, so we're going to jump into the five minute and 12 second mark. Let me share my screen again. And again, let me know if y'all were hearing it uh, well or if it was distorted on your end. Just uh, let me know if we're good on maybe, the audio. Though. Maybe it needed to be a little louder. Okay. All right. Let's try this. Well, sure. Martin Luther strategically chose October 31st to nail his 95 theses on the church door in Wittenberg, Germany, because the next day was All Saints Day, and that's when Roman Catholics were going to go in to worship and venerate relics. And relics are bone fragments or hair spotches or fingernails of Roman Catholic saints, and so they were supposed to receive indulgences by confessing to a priest and venerating these relics. So Martin Luther chose this day so that many people would see his 95 Theses. And his 95 Theses really protested the use of indulgences. In fact, Martin Luther was outraged that Roman Catholic Church was selling God's forgiveness for a price. And so by nailing these 95 Theses, he was looking for a debate so that people could actually sit down and talk through these. What do you think about that? 
are Catholics selling <laughs> God's forgiveness and were Catholics worshiping relics? Uh, yeah, no, of course not. I mean, how could he assert that the Catholics were going into worship stains and worship statues? I mean, if that's what he thought before he left, no wonder he thinks the Catholic Church is wrong because he mm -hmm. didn't understand it to begin with. Um, the Catholic Church never sold indulgences. That's a myth of history. And in fact, nobody even had to pay. If you didn't have money, for an indulgence, you didn't even need to pay money for indulgence. There are many other ways to get indulgences. So the Catholic Church never sold it, number one. And number two, indulgences don't forgive sin. So the fact that he uh, falsely asserts that, you know, the Catholic Church sold these so that they could get their sins forgiven, it's not accurate. The church writings of that time, the Pope's writings are so clear that if you don't go to confession first, the indulgence is not going to do anything to forgive your sins. It's confession to Jesus Christ who forgives our sins. Indulgences have nothing to do with the forgiveness of sins. And even if somebody were to abuse the indulgence system and try to Which offer a presentation that, you know, you have to buy forgiveness of sins, that's certainly not the teaching of the church. And so an abuse does not negate proper use. I mean, somebody could come and take the message of Jesus and abuse it and say, such as perhaps um, some did, and that that is, they would say, let us sin that grace may abound. If if God's grace is magnified in the great forgiveness of sins, then let us just f sin even more so God's grace can be magnified even more. That's an abuse of the message of the New Testament, as Paul rightly condemns. Um, but just because somebody abuses the message doesn't negate the actual proper use of the message of Christ and the forgiveness of sins. Likewise here with indulgences. Moreover, this notion of, of worship, he says worship and venerate. Surely he knows a distinction between the two. Um, those not. are not the same thing in Catholic theology. Worship belongs only to God. Veneration may be applied to the saints, but they're not in the same category at all. They should not be conflated. So I kind of wonder, why did he just conflate those two terms as if they were identical? Unless that he thinks that there really isn't a distinction. Maybe he thinks that we make this distinction, but he doesn't grant it. The problem is that distinction is one that you can find in Scripture. That is a distinction that's warranted in the sacred scriptures. So I would say you, you have to be able to grant it. So I wow. might also, mm. um, he might be going back to the old uh, English or old languages where mm -hmm. back in the old day, worship had several different meanings all the way from, you know, honoring someone all the way to downright bowing before and adoring them. So, you know, you might find in a few Catholic documents and in a few saints like St. Uh, Liguori talking about worshiping Mary, but he doesn't mm -hmm. mean it in this type right. of worship. He's talking right. about honor and veneration. And that's why the Catholic church makes that distinction between latria adoration and dulia, which is veneration. And so anyone can find this truth out if they actually take, you know, what the Catholic church teaches in context and doesn't just pluck something out. And I'm almost getting the impression that he thinks that Martin Luther was somehow combating against the Catholic Church when he nailed his 95 theses. That's certainly not the case. He still considered yeah. himself Catholic. He still maintained the papacy and believed that he was being a good son of the church and a son of the pope. And so he, he certainly wasn't this individual who just thought that he was 
um, you know, he was he was standing against all the corruption in the Catholic Church, and he was going to show that the Catholic Church was wrong and blah blah blah. That wasn't the case, especially at at that time of the Reformation. So. Yeah, and he said he was looking for a debate, Mm -hmm. and he got a debate. I mean, John Tetzel had uh, someone draw up 100, I believe, 35 theses to respond to Martin Luther's 95 theses, and they kind of just blew them out of the water, pointing out endless errors and misconceptions that he held, first about the authority of the church and also about indulgences. Well, he had a debate with John Eck, and when you read the debate, it really does look like John Eck beat him very severely in the debate. <laughs> so, all right, let's uh, let's continue with the six minute and 10 mark. And so the Reformation was necessary because if you look at the history of the Roman Catholic Church, it began drifting into apostasy really around the fourth century when Constantine became the Roman emperor. And he... This appeal to this notion that in the Catholic Church, which again, it seems like he's saying the Catholic Church at the very least existed in the fourth century. That to me also seems to be a curiosity, but okay. Um, so you have the Catholic Church going astray in the fourth century around the time of Constantine. We hear this all the time. Here's my problem with that the dogmatic teachings and the substance of the dogmatic teachings of the Catholic Church can be found in the pre Nicene period and pre Constantinian period. That, that's that's the problem. So to say that this is something that came around with Constantine and that's when all the corruption came in, it's an absurd position to maintain since you can find those same distinctives, Catholic distinctives, going back to the first and second centuries. That's right. And I think he's going to bring up things like infant baptism. Mormons do this. Jehovah's Witnesses do this. I mean, infant baptism for so many religions is proof that the Catholic Church is wrong and went astray, when in fact, infant baptism was taught centuries before the fourth century. In fact, Origen in the third century says it goes back to the time of the apostles and comes from the tradition of the apostles. So this was around long before fourth century. So how could that be proof that the church went astray? I don't know. Let's uh, let's hear him out a little bit further. When Constantine became the Roman emperor and he established Christianity as the official religion of the Roman Empire. Um, Constantine did not do that. That was actually, <laughs> to my recollection, Theodosius II, if I'm not mistaken, in the late 4th century. Um, I thought Constantine just simply made Christianity legal. He didn't make it the religion of the empire. Right. He allowed them to worship freely. He allowed them to worship without persecution. I mean, I don't think these people realize they understand that the earliest Christians were killed. They were tortured. They were persecuted, maimed. But they don't realize that those Christians were actually Catholic for 300 years on and off. The Catholic Church was persecuted and killed. And then Constantine finally just allowed them to have the freedom of worship without having to uh, bow down to false gods. Mm. Yeah, and I confirmed it was uh, Theodosius the first. Theodosius the second was yeah. shortly after Theodosius the first. Yeah, it was Theodosius that made it the official religion of the empire. But um, all right, well, this isn't sounding like, again, a good start, but let's let's try to continue a little further. But it was a false Christianity because no one had to have faith. They just had to be baptized, and that was how they became a part of this church. That... Yeah, I don't think that that's accurate either then or now. 
Um, Catholics even today maintain that you you have to have faith. And even on part of an infant who's baptized, you have the godparent um, exercising faith on their behalf, which which is a concept of yeah. vicarious faith. This is, this is a New Testament concept. You see this um, idea in one of the Gospels themselves where you have an individual who's is being healed by the faith of another person. Um, so again, this idea of vicarious faith being exercised for an infant is is something at least substantially that we can see conceptually in the New Testament. Um, but I've never heard of this before, that you don't have to have faith, you just simply have to be baptized. I don't recognize that as Catholicism. Of course not, because, uh, you know, part of the problem with anti-Catholics, former Catholics, is they throw out these blanket statements, these gross overgeneralizations that aren't supported by any facts. They're never supported by any evidence because there isn't any. See, he could say, look, in the fourth century, we have the Pope saying that you don't need to have faith. You just need baptism. Oh, look, we have this Catholic saying you just need baptism and then you're going to heaven. It doesn't say that because nobody in the third, fourth, second, fifth, tenth century in the Catholic Church ever taught that. So they're just throwing these things out. I don't even know if they ever fact-checked them. He's probably heard it from someone else who probably heard it from someone else and no one's ever looked it up, but it's grossly untrue and it can't be supported. In fact, it can be proven false because all of the earliest Christians, Catholics like St. Augustine, for example, talk about the necessity of faith going along with baptism. Yeah, and they maintain a, a form of baptismal regeneration and still speak of the necessity of faith, as you're pointing out there. So those things aren't mutually exclusive, which even a Lutheran would admit they're not mutually exclusive. And it's um, biblical. Mark 16, mm -hmm. 16 says, he who believes and is baptized and is baptized will be saved. I'm just not recognizing Catholicism in this critique, <laughs> but hopefully I will here in a moment. Let's continue. Constantine was the Pontificus Maximus of. And so a lot of pagan traditions came into that church early on. And as the years went by, more and more pagan traditions were added to the Roman Catholic religion. So the word apostasy means they departed from the faith of the apostles. Well, um, I, I'm curious what these pagan rituals are. Uh, what he's referring to, I kind of wonder if he's referring to prayers to the saints or veneration of relics, all which precede or come before um, Constantine in that era. So I, I would be curious what he's referring to here. I'm pretty sure I just said that, didn't I? They just throw out these these yeah. generalizations without supporting them by facts, without supporting them with, you know, evidence. I think he mentions a couple instances coming up, but um, I don't like when people do that. Oh, they just had unbiblical traditions. Well, what, you know what? What were they? You know, how did they differ from what? you think biblical Christianity was. If we read the earliest Christians, I wonder if he's even read the earliest Christians, to be honest. I'm not getting the impression that he's really done any kind of significant reading there. But um, no. again, maybe maybe we're going to find out more here soon. Let's continue. Pontificus Maximus. Doing, as Paul mentioned in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, they departed from the faith to follow doctrines of demons. See, I, I, I would just turn it right back around and say, well, maybe some of your views are doctrines of demons. 
Right. Um, and, and maybe it's not the Catholics that have doctrines of demons. Maybe your understanding of the gospel is uh, there's some corruption there. And therefore, to, to the extent that it's corrupted, it's a doctrine of demons because it's detracting from the true message of Jesus. So we could easily just turn the tables and just apply those same scriptures to them. So to, to me, this kind of mishandling of scripture, I don't find to be very convincing. Right. So the Roman Catholic Church became very demonic over the years. And so when Martin Luther nailed these 95 Theses, it had really progressed to the point where it no longer resembled biblical Christianity. Especially so he says Catholicism ha had become more and more demonic over the years. Um, no wonder he converted. I mean, if he felt like he was part of something that was demonic, yeah, it totally makes sense that he left. Catholicism, but again, I would just have to challenge this whether or not Catholicism per se is demonic. Certainly, some of its adherents, uh, to the degree that they have failed to adhere to Catholicism, have engaged in evil actions. Um, but I would say the system itself is is not demonic. It's it's um, Christological. It's apostolic. What do you think? I would agree. Um, again, just read the early Christians. Anyone out there, if you're anti-Catholic, if you're non-Catholic, if you're ex-Catholic, read the writings of the earliest Christians. See it for yourself. Stop taking what everyone else says about the early church or about people adding doctrine. See what the earliest Christians believe and match it up to what he believes or match it up to what Catholics believe. And you're going to see which one was actually part of the early church. Mm. All right, let's continue. When it comes to the gospel. And so the purpose of the Reformation was to restore the gospel of Jesus Christ to the people. And as these reformers began... But see, I would actually argue that though that may have been the intention of some of the reformers, they ended up corrupting the gospel and corrupting the message of Christ and detracting from it. So I don't see the Reformation as a restoration of the message of Christ. I want to say that they detracted from it. Um, so again, he's kind of assuming what needs to be proven, and that is the message of the gospel of the reformers is the message of the New Testament and not a corruption of it. I'm not going to grant that it's a restoration of that message. I'm going to say it's corruption. And I think he disproves his own message because he said the reformers, you know, found the word. The reformers found the Bible. The reformers found the truth of Jesus Christ. Really? Which reformers? Are we talking about the Lutheran truth, or are we talking about the Calvinistic truth, or are we talking about Zwingli or King Henry VIII? I mean, there are many reformers, and they hardly agree with each other, all the way down to what the word faith means, justification means, and being saved means. They could not agree with each other, and sometimes they vary drastically. So he's grouping all of the reformers together like oh they just all agreed they all found the one truth no they all disagreed with each other and which proves that well number one he doesn't know what he's talking about but number two protestantism doesn't know what it's talking about either because they say when people group them together oh the protestants found the truth the protestants restored the truth that's the same thing the mormons claim and the jehovah's witnesses claim and the church of god and the seventh-day adventists and all the rest of them but they all believe different things and it's it just doesn't work Mm, let's continue. Abiding in God's word, they discovered the truth, and that truth set them free from religious deception and religious bondage. And that's true today. As people abide in God's word, if they're trapped in religious deception, the truth will set them free. Yes. See. Indeed. Indeed. 
Hmm. I literally just said that. <laughs> if people abide in God's word, they're going to have the truth that sets them free. Except that now we have thousands, probably millions of individual opinions, and they don't agree with each other. They can't agree. Protestants can't agree all across the board. Some believe that you can be saved eternally, eternal security. Others say no way. Some believe you need baptism. It's regeneration. Others say no way. Some say you can lose your salvation. Others say you can't. Others say you need to be baptized in the name of Jesus. Others in the Trinity, like all across the board, they can't agree. So how? Now, they're all abiding in the scriptures. They're all going by the Bible alone. They're all praying to the Holy Spirit for guidance, and they're all coming up with different understandings of what it means. So either the Holy Spirit is really confused, or these are man-made religions that really divided and desecrated the body of Christ, and they're not from God, and they're not actually presenting the truth. Yeah. Um, I, for me, I have to keep just coming back to the question of how do you know the true message of Christ versus a corruption of it? And, and I'm not hearing that, and I usually never hear it from a Protestant, they just assume that they have the correct understanding and the correct interpretation. Of course, the answer is going to be, well, they know they have the correct interpretation because they're, they're, they can appeal to Scripture. They know they have the correct concept because they can just go to the Word of God. But that's exactly what we're trying to determine because we share the same New Testament and we're coming to two different perspectives um so it's it's not good enough to just simply point me to scripture when that's the very thing that we have a dispute over we're gonna have to go beyond that and if it's your position then that well the holy spirit hasn't really given us anything objective beyond the scriptures well that's a very sad perspective that's a very sad outlook because at the end of the day it just boils down to then your interpretation versus my interpretation and your perspective that you're being led by the Holy Spirit versus my perspective that I'm being led by the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and uh, just off the top of my head, uh, he is holding up Martin Luther as the one who found the truth and found mm. the truth that sets him free. And he does that a lot throughout this video, except that guess what? Martin Luther believes in uh, not only infant baptism, which he condemns, he also <laughs> believes in baptismal regeneration, which Mike Gendron condemns as well. He does not believe in baptismal regeneration, whereas Lutheran does. So already they, too, disagree. He's holding them up with this false, almost, I, I don't want to use the word idolatry, you know, but a, he's holding them up falsely in a way that he doesn't even agree with many of the truths that Martin Luther held. But, you know, they would probably say, well, yeah, but that's just because they were former Catholics, so they couldn't get rid of all the air in their minds. You know, it was a slow, gradual process. All right. Well, I mean, how do you know that they're not erroneous in their understanding of justification then? I mean, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> or their understanding of baptism or something like that. So, all right, let's move forward. Well, Mike, um, so you mentioned Constantine, and a question that I'm often asked as I travel and preach and teach, and I, I hit on Roman Catholicism as well, because there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of commonality between word faith and Roman Catholicism. A lot of people don't realize that, but there's a lot of overlap there. But um, <laughs> a question I'm often asked is this. Has the Roman Catholic Church always been as heretical? Did it start off as heretical as it became? in later centuries? Yeah, it's a good question. When you look at the history of the church, we really have two streams of Christianity running side by side for 2,000 years. 
Yeah. We see in the first century there was apostasy. First John chapter two, verse 19, John says they went out from us because they were never part of us. Had they been part of us, they would have remained with us. Another way John could have said that, they went out from us because they were never born again of the Spirit of God. Had they been born again, they would have remained with us. And so you see these two streams operating side by side. The true apostolic church is made up of all those who have been born again of the Spirit of God. It doesn't matter today what denomination, if you were baptized by the Spirit of God, you belong to the one true church. Right. But the Roman Catholic Church started preaching baptismal regeneration even as early as the fourth century. Um, actually, no, baptismal regeneration is taught as early as the first century. Um, and it is all throughout the apostolic fathers in the second century and third century. Um, in fact, this is one of the areas that the fathers are effectively unanimous on, and that is baptismal yeah. regeneration. Yeah, what are your thoughts about what's being said here? Ooh, there's a whole lot of thoughts. <laughs> uh, I don't believe that there were two churches growing side by side. In fact, uh, Mormons, you know, kind of believe that, and Jehovah's Witnesses and others, Baptists, but... Um, Fundamentalist Baptists actually hold this, so I do wonder if he's a Baptist of some sort. Um, but no, there weren't two churches. There was one church. There's only one body of Christ, and then there were people who left the body of Christ. He misquotes the Bible. He says they left because they were never of us. He never said the word ever. He said they were not of us. He never said they weren't at one time part of us, and maybe they went astray. Of course, he's talking about one of the Gnostic heresies here, and people were going and being deceived by that, and they were leaving for it. And so, you know, he never said they weren't Christian at one time, and then they left. He's just saying they're not of us because they're going out from us. They're not actually Christians. But there's only one church. There's only one body of Christ. So I know he's trying to make the distinction between a true church and a false church, and perhaps, you know, I don't really think the case can be made for that. What would you say about that? I'm curious what he thinks Titus 3.5 is about. I mean, what is this labor of regeneration? What is this concept in John 3, 3 through 5 that talks about being born again of the wa of water and the spirit? I mean, what does he do with Acts chapter 2, 38 through 39? Repent and be baptized and you will receive the Holy Spirit. I mean, there, there are multiple scriptures in the New Testament. Baptism now saves you, Peter says. I mean, there's just all kinds of references that clearly show a connection between actual washing of water and the reception of the Holy Spirit. Um, aside from the fact that this is a unanimously un understood doctrine from the people who were entrusted with the scriptures, um, so the disciples of the apostles themselves. Um, so he would have to say that scripture has a corrupt view, and if he's not going to say that, he's just going to say we have the wrong interpretation of scripture. Okay, but again, the very earliest Christians that received these scriptures who were taught by the apostles themselves, so the disciples of the apostles, whose writings we still have today, they're teaching baptismal regeneration. So you have to say that the disciples of the apostles went astray. All right, <clears throat> except it was those that same group of people that were fighting the heretics like the Gnostics and others. So if if they went astray, that is the disciples of the apostles, where are the Orthodox Christians? Where, where are the true Christians? We, we don't find them. We don't find people that have this denial of baptismal regeneration, for example. <coughs> so if, if you throw away these apostolic fathers and say they're corrupt in their faith, um, 
Who's left? The Gnostics? Uh, okay, I mean, obviously he's not going to go with the Gnostics. All right, well, who else is left? The pagans? Who's left at that yeah. point? Where Where is this true church that he's talking about? I can't find it any more than I can find this true Mormon church or a true whatever church that I want to make up today. I just can't find right, it. Right, exactly. And when I... um. When I evangelize these type of people like Mike Gendron, or I have discussions with Protestant pastors and I talk about this exact thing, I ask them, okay, let's just say you're right. There were two different churches. You know, one turned into Roman Catholicism, one was the true church. What were the names of the leaders of that true church? Uh, what years did they live? Uh, can you name for me five, let's say, leaders in the first three centuries of the church? And they never can. Once in a while, they might throw out a name like, oh, Polycarp, to which I respond, well, did you know that Polycarp was a bishop of the Catholic Church in Smyrna in the first century? And immediately they cut me off. I don't want to talk about this anymore. And they, you worship Mary, or they change the topic. But there's, they have literally no evidence for this kind of conspiracy theory of history. Uh, not to mention he has a false version of what the church is. The church, he says, is just the invisible body of believer, believers in any denomination, except that Jesus said that the body, the church is the body. Body of Christ. And in so there is no division, no schism. It's supposed to be of one heart, one mind, one faith, one baptism, but they all disagree with each other and can't get it right. So the Bible does not present an invisible body of believers as the church. It's presented as a visible organization where it has the apostles at the head, as it says in 1 Corinthians 12, 28, and teachers and prophets and bishops and priests and deacons. These are all offices. They have the laying on of hands to pass on authority. This is all visible. Matthew Matthew 18, 15 through 18 says, if you have a problem, take it to the church. How are you going to do that if it's just an invisible, nice idea? No, it's surely in the New Testament is an objectively identifiable community, which, again, is identifiable through apostolic succession, as Irenaeus notes in refuting the Gnostics. And so I have often said and will continue to say that the same way that we are to refute Protestants is the way that St. Irenaeus in the second century refutes the Gnostics and appeal to apostolic succession because the Gnostics are claiming that certain books aren't scripture and they have a corrupt interpretation of scripture, just as the Protestants do. So we respond to the Protestants just as we would to the Gnostics, although they are obviously different in some of their aspects of theology. Conceptually, they're in the same category when it comes to discerning the truth. Um, because again, there's a question with Elm on what's the canon, what's the proper interpretation, just as we have with the Gnostics. Okay, we can appeal to an objectively identifiable community um, of churches established by the apostles that have leadership going back in apostolic succession to the first century. And the first century message that was handed down to us by the apostles, the preaching of the gospel has been handed down to us in our churches. That message is not in agreement with you Gnostics. Likewise, the message that has been handed down to us, it's not in agreement, or rather the Protestants are not in agreement with the message that's been handed down through apostolic succession. Um, I think the only people that would really be convinced by what we're hearing um, so far in this video are people who don't know anything about church history. And and I think that <laughs> that's kind of what they're, they're, they're preying on people who don't know about church history. So all this is going to sound convincing to them. But for anyone who knows about the early church, this isn't going to work. They're going to they're going to have some serious pushback. Or people who just don't want to know the truth. Say that. Ed. 
or people who just don't want to know the truth. Some people, people don't. Some people do and are just, you know, not not in a really good position to discern the truth or the falsity of an argument. Um, so I think that the reason why messages like this one tend to flourish is because you have people who are in a position that they don't know much about church history. And so it's just easy to get over on them. Regardless of his whether his intentions are to get over on him or not, I don't know what his intentions are. I'm sure he thinks that he is giving the message of truth, uh, but at the end of the day, no, it, it's it's misleading to people, even if his intentions were somehow good. All right, let's continue. Lord, that a person was born again through the waters of baptism, and so that put. The gospel off limits to a lot of Catholics. They thought they were already on the road to heaven through their sacrament. Well, I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't Luther have maintained uh, baptismal regeneration? Did he have a corrupt view of the gospel? You know, I'm just wondering where where he gets this this correct view of the gospel. Is it from the Anabaptists that he's appealing to? Um, boy, uh, Luther would have had some words to say about the Anabaptists. So. Oh, he uh, did. Where's he getting this perspective from is what I want to know. Yeah. And this is what I was referring to. He disagrees with Luther. He's holding him up as a champion, but disagrees with him on some severe core doctrines. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like it. Of baptism. But as the church evolved with more and more heretical doctrines in the 13th century, for example, they established the supposed miracle of transubstantiation where the priest is said to have the power to call Jesus Christ down from heaven and then through this miracle trip. I mean, this is a concept found in the patristic era. They're not going to use the word transubstantiation. It doesn't matter what, you're, what word you're using as long as you have the same meaning behind it. Um, and the meaning of what's being communicated by transubstantiation is surely there in the patristic era. But I guess that's a corruption for him as well. All right, well, if that's a corruption, where are these true Christians who held the true faith about exactly. the Eucharist? I don't know where they are. I'd love to see where this true church is that maintains the true understanding of the Eucharist. Same thing with baptismal regeneration. I want to see the earliest Christians who taught that baptismal regeneration was evil. I mean, if there were two churches side by side, then why is only one side have all the evidence and the other is not even heard of? It's non-existent. Yeah. <coughs> I'm not aware of anyone who denied baptismal regeneration in the patristic era, so, for instance. I'd be interested in, in seeing if there was anyone, because to my knowledge, there wasn't. Transubstantiation, the inner substance of the wafer becomes his physical body and blood, soul, and divinity. So the priest will then... Becomes his physical body, blood. See, I actually wouldn't say that that's the Catholic doctrine. We, we don't say it becomes his physical physical because it still remains under the accidental elements of bread and wine so it doesn't become his physical body blood soul and divinity that wouldn't even make sense uh but it does truly become his body blood and soul and divinity those are two distinct things physical right. and truly are not the same thing it truly is the body blood soul and divinity of christ that we receive is it physically? It's still physically under the accidental um, accidental elements of bread and wine, but substantially it's Christ. And that's what we mean by truly. Substantially, you're see, receiving his body, blood, soul, and divinity under the accidental appearances of bread and wine. To say that it's his physical body would be to assert cannibalism 
and would be to say that we don't believe that the accidental elements of bread and wine are still there. Of course we do. Under the accidents of bread and wine. <laughs> this is exactly what transubstantiation is. It's just, I guess he doesn't understand what, what we mean by transubstantiation. No, probably not. Same way he doesn't understand the fathers or many other things. But even if you do grant, you know, physical, which, you know, I agree with you, but even if you grant, you know, the physical presence of Jesus there, it's in a glorified way. We receive Jesus in a glorified way. Jesus had a physical body in John chapter 20 mm -hmm. when he passed through the door into the room where the apostles were at. The, mm -hmm. the Bible makes it clear. It stops to make the note that the doors were locked and Jesus passed through. Now, mm -hmm. Jehovah's Witnesses say that's because he was a ghost or a phantom, and so did the Gnostics. But the Bible teaches that Jesus had a physical body. It was just a glorified, perfected body. So mm -hmm. when we receive the Eucharist, we receive him in a glorified way. He passes through us as he passes through that door. We don't actually munch on his finger and commit <laughs> right. some physical cannibalism or something. Him. Exactly. Yeah, we, substantially, we, we don't actually you know, eat the physical appearances of Christ. Um, so I, I'm concerned by the fact that he used physical there because that, that doesn't fully express what we are maintaining by transubstantiation. And lift up the wafer for all the Catholics to worship the wafer as the true Christ, having been called down from heaven to continue. I guess they just have no idea who Eastern Catholics are because... <laughs> <laughs> because in the in the Byzantine churches we we don't have wafers anyway. It's actually leavened bread. So I guess he's just not at all aware that there are some Catholics that don't use wafers. They actually use leavened bread. But that's a that's a trivial issue. But it goes to show that he has this one perspective of the Catholic Church. And I actually want to say no. The Catholic Church is more diverse than that. No, it's not, Michael. There's no Eastern Catholics. There's only Roman Catholicism, right. apparently. There's, no, there's <laughs> nothing else for, for him. <laughs> the work of redemption on an altar that he finished on the cross. And so the Catholic priest will lift it up. All the Catholics will worship the Eucharist, and then he will lay it on the altar as a propitiation. And, you know, somebody's noting, and, and it's true, that you, you don't have this elevation and, and reverence in the Eastern churches of the Eucharistic species. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. I, I have no problem with Latin Rite Catholics doing that. But what I'm saying is he think, he's, tends to think that this is representative of all Catholics, and it's just not. And I just want people to be a little bit more nuanced than that. Uh, but I, I guess we're not going to get that from him. ...sacrifice such that the sins committed in the previous week by Roman Catholics are appeased by God through the offering of this Eucharist. And so more and more heretical teachings came into the Catholic Church to the point where God raised up these reformers. And one of the heresies was that they named the Pope as the head of the church. Now, we know the true head of the church is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's oh, boy. <laughs> um Look, when I hear this level of argumentation, it's it's something I just I can't take seriously. Um and it, and it's hard for me to have respect for anybody even if they mean well when they use this level of argumentation. Obviously, Jesus is the head of the church. Everybody believes that. That's not in dispute. The question is is there also a vicarious head?
a visible head. It's not a question of whether or not Jesus is the head or not. We all agree he is. So you can't say, well, Jesus is the head of the church, as if that invalidates our claims about the Pope, because our claims that the Pope is the head of the church is not in a way that excludes Jesus as the head of the church. In the same way that he would maintain the husband is the head of the household. Well, wait, you believe that Jesus isn't the head of the household? Is that what you believe, Mr. Prodigal? That would be really, really ridiculous if I were to use that kind of argumentation against him. Oh, well, you believe that man is the head of the house, according to Paul? Well, you don't believe that Jesus is the head of the household. I guess this family just doesn't have Jesus in it. I mean, if I were to take that kind of argumentation, I would hope you would lose some respect for me if I were sincere with that. I would, I would sure hope that you would seriously lose some respect for me because that's an absurd argument. Obviously, the headship of the husband as the head of the household and of the family doesn't exclude Christ also being the head of that family. All right. They're, they're seen in harmony with one another in, um, in St. Paul, for instance. So that that's what we would just note is there, there's a distinction between the kind of headship that we're talking about that doesn't exclude Christ as the head. And we're just simply speaking about a visible vicar, if you will, a visible head. And if you're going to fight against that, you're certainly going to have a problem with, then with the New Testament that establishes Peter as that physical head. And it sees the New Testament sees that that office of headship among the apostles would endure into their successors, the bishops, which is what the Pope is, the head of the bishops. And it's testified to excessively in the patristic era. So again, it's just hard for me to take this level of argumentation seriously. What are your thoughts? Just that... Um... I just add one thing that uh, it's an official Catholic doctrine too. You can find it in Vatican II. You can find it in papal writings. You can find it in the official teachings of the church that Jesus is the head of the church. So really it's a straw man argument. It's, it, it just shows that he doesn't understand. And uh, wait till you hear the next line of what he says uh, in this video. All right. <laughs> there, there I proceed. I'll, I'm, I might have a heart attack over here. Let's, let's try. He's the one that suffered and died and bled. He purchased the church with his own blood. How dare the Pope declare himself to be head of the church? There you go. That's the reestablished Christ as the head of the church. The Reformation also was necessary because the Catholic Church had elevated the teachings of their infallible bishops above the authority of culture. Interesting, since that's the exact claim that we deny. Um, we deny that in Dei Verbum chapter 10. Um, so I, that's not what we say, but that's his impression of what we say. But it's certainly not what we say. We don't say that the magisterium is above Scripture. We actually say it's subservient to it. Exactly. And uh, how dare the Pope make himself the head of the church? 
when I'd be curious, when did that happen? When did he make himself yeah. the head of the church? Because I'm pretty sure Jesus made him the head of the church in Matthew 16, 18 and 19, when he gave him the keys of the kingdom. In fact, I just did a, a wonderful interview with uh, Joe Heschmeyer on my channel, which is going to be put up soon. And uh, he talks all about that, about how uh, obviously most Catholics know this, most Protestants don't, but the keys symbolize authority, the highest authority in the land. Like Eliakim, when uh, the Assyrians came to attack Israel, they wanted to see the king, but who did they see? Eliakim, who stood in the king's place and had the authority of the king to speak for the king. That's the role that Peter had because he received the keys. It's not Peter who gave it to himself. It's Jesus who gave him the keys and not just of the key to the house of David, but the keys to the kingdom of heaven. That's serious authority. The Pope being head of the church wasn't really even disputed. I mean, in the patristic era, East and West were asserting that the Pope was the head of the church. You can even find the Emperor Justinian. I mean, he's obviously Eastern here. The Emperor Justinian in his um, letters referred explicitly to the Pope as the head of all the churches. And even some of the ecumenical councils speak of the Pope as the head of the churches. Uh, for example, the Second Council of Nicaea, um, although that's certainly not the first instance. So, I mean, it, this concept that the Pope is head of the church wasn't really in dispute. What, what was more in dispute is, okay, what does that translate into practically? But the fact that he's the head was just not, that. this wasn't up for debate. I mean, this, this is known because he's the successor of St. Peter, and we all agree that Peter was the chief of the apostles. East and West, we all agree on that. Now, maybe he's going to say that, well, all of you went corrupt. Okay, I'm willing to entertain that. Where were the people that maintained the truth, though? Where, where was the true church that wasn't corrupt? Do we have exactly. any evidence of it? And if we don't have any evidence of it, how are you any better than somebody else who would come along and say, I'm part of the true church and we've existed all along from the first century, but there's no evidence of you in church history? Or maybe you're a Mormon and you're making claims in the first or second century, but there's just no evidence for it. Uh, how are you any better than the Mormons at that point if you're just going to assert this invisible church that we have zero evidence for? I, that's not convincing to me. I need more than that. Hence my questions. What were the people's names? Who were your leaders? What years did they live? What did they teach? I want to see it in writing. Yeah, I need a paper trail. Um, there, there sure is plenty of evidence of what what was maintained. We sure have a whole lot of writings that have been handed down to us. I, I need some evidence of their existence. All right, let's continue. In fact, uh, when you stop and think about it, if anyone is above Scripture and they're the only ones that can interpret it, then they have placed themselves above the inerrant, inspired, authoritative word of God. See, those are actually two different things. Um, and first of all, we're not saying that the Pope or the bishops are the only ones who can interpret Scripture. That's a caricature. We are saying, however, is that the bishops are the authentic or authoritative interpreters of Scripture, um, whereas private individuals are not. An authoritative interpreter is one that's actually commissioned by Christ to be in that office. Um, and we would say that of the bishops, but that doesn't then translate into there are no interpreters outside of that. There just are no authoritative interpreters outside of them. But the question is, is if you're an authentic interpreter of Scripture, does that place you over Scripture? No, that does not logically follow. 
But I've noticed that Protestants assume that. And I want to say, wait, that doesn't logically follow. Prove it to me. Just because you have an authoritative interpretation doesn't make you over it. What would make you over it is you have the ability to override it, to overwrite it, to add to it. And the magisterium can't do any of that. We can't add. I mean, the, the church, the bishops, they can't add to the deposit of faith. They can't reverse the deposit of faith, change it. They, they can't do that. All they can do is authoritatively transmit it and interpret it. That's not the same thing. So I want to say they assume something, and I'm not going to grant that assumption. I'm going to challenge it and say, wait, just because you're an authoritative interpreter doesn't mean you're over something because... When you're over something, that means that you can overturn it, add to it, delete from it. And that's certainly not what we're claiming. So we're not claiming that the bishops are over it. It's a caricature. It is a caricature. But uh, Protestants will say, oh, you did add to it many times over. You added saints, you added purgatory, you added all these things, which in fact are biblical. They just usually don't know the scriptures. And mm -hmm. we in turn would say, no, in fact, you added to the scriptures. You added mm -hmm. faith alone. You added the Bible alone. You added the rapture. You added private interpretation of scripture. You added mega churches. <laughs> you can add, uh, say a lot of things, you know, that they added to scripture. Um but that weren't part of the early church. What we believe can be found in the patristics, in the writings of the earliest Christians. Ooh, let's do a little bit more here. So the reformers established the scriptures as the supreme authority. And that's why when we look at the Reformation. Um, we also believe scriptures are the supreme authority. That, that's actually no, not a problem for a Catholic to say that the scriptures are supreme authority. Um, supreme in the sense that they are number one. I mean, they have it, it, it is the word of God, right? It is actual um, public revelation being transmitted to us in a written form. And we can even speak of it as having priority over the oral transmission. Although they're both, that is, the written word of God and the oral transmission of the word of God are equal in reverence, and it's the same content. Um, we would give priority to Scripture because Scripture is in, in scripturated. And this is, again, something you can find in the Manualist tradition. I've mentioned them before, Emmanuel Duranzo, one of the last Manualists, right at the era of the Second Vatican Council, a Thomist. He explicitly notes in his work, Channels of Revelation, which is available online for free in PDF format. Channels of Revelation, Emmanuel Duranzo explicitly talks about the form of the written form of the word of God having priority over the oral transmission because it's more accessible, it's more identifiable, it's more concrete because it's it's you know written. Um, so we can speak about scripture in this way, but it doesn't logically follow then that you don't have other infallible means so that you wouldn't have an infallible rule outside of scripture. You certainly do have other infallible rules outside of scripture. But those are two different things, right? Just because you have an infallible rule outside of Scripture doesn't mean that it has priority over Scripture. So the right. substance of what he's trying to say about Scripture, a Catholic can say that and still maintain the infallibility of the bishops, for example, and still maintain the uh, equal reverence that is due to the oral transmission of sacred scripture. So I really think that this is again, setting up a straw man and knocking it down. And at the end of the day, a Catholic can confidently say what he says and yet not come to his conclusions because there are assumptions that he's making that he should not make. Exactly. And 
uh, somebody has to interpret the scriptures, you know, and I, I really do not like the Protestant mentality that if you disagree biblical, you're mm-hmm. wrong. You're not going by the word <laughs> because it disagrees with my personal, private, fallible interpretation of the scriptures. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we believe that this, as you said, they're supreme. It's just not the final authority on all matters. And that's unbiblical. Again, he's going to talk about the reformers, but the reformers went by the Bible alone. And now we have thousands of competing religions and theologies going on today that all go by the scriptures, all think they're led by the spirit and all think they have the full truth, but they don't. Let's do a little more here. We have these five important solas. The Catholic Church have taught salvation is by grace plus merit, faith plus works, Christ plus other mediators, scripture plus tradition, and glory was going to God as well as Mary and the saints. Wow, that is um, the worst straw man that I've ever seen, you know, where somebody tries to use the five solas against the Catholic Church. Um, I guess that's one way of putting it, (laughs) but but I certainly wouldn't concede any of that. Wow, it's like, where do we begin with this kind of stuff? The, The kind of objections that I'm hearing here with these five solas, when you put it on that level, it, it, I, it would take hours to unravel and unpack the problems of what was just said and the refutations of them. And I'm simply going to say, no, that is a canard and that is a straw man. That is not an accurate representation of the Catholic perspective. That's an oversimplification. So we can even, as Catholics, speak of Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone. We can speak of those things in a very qualified, qualified sense, but not in a way that that he would understand them. Certainly not. We're, we're not going to be compatible <laughs> when, it, when we say these things. But the truth of what he's trying to get at about not detracting from Christ and not detracting from God's glory, we can affirm all of that. Yes, we're not detracting from any of those things. So the heart of what he's trying to say, we're in agreement with. But certainly how he understands it, no, there's certainly a, a difference there. So the Reformers said no. Having discovered the true gospel in the scriptures, they said salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to scripture alone, all for the glory of God alone. Um, You know, scripture alone, could we say that everything that is part of divine revelation is in scripture? Yeah, we could say that if that's what we mean by scripture alone. We could say that, materially speaking, everything that is divinely revealed is there in Scripture. But it clearly needs to be interpreted and unpacked. It needs to be given form. And that's going to be where the magisterium steps in. Um, So all of those things, again, the heart of what he's trying to say with the solas, we can say we agree with. And yet we don't come to the conclusions that he comes to. Indeed, and sometimes when I'm talking to Catholics, or I get emails, and I, right before we started recording, I, I shared with you that I got an email just this morning from someone who has taken issue with what I've taught about the Roman Catholic Church. But it, it's not that. So Roman Roman Catholics, Roman Catholicism would not deny, at least not in words, they would not say, "Oh, no, we're not saved by grace." I mean, they would say, "Yes, we're saved." by grace and yes 
we must have faith. So they were not <laughs> grace and faith, at least not outright. But they use some of the same lingo, Mike. They'll use the term grace. They'll use the term faith. But they don't mean by those terms what you and I would mean by those terms, right? Um, that's not even necessarily true. Um, we, we could actually end up meaning the same things by grace and faith once we properly define our terms. So I'm, I'm not willing to concede that. They, they add a meaning into grace, especially grace. I don't think with it, we add a meaning any more, any different than what a Protestant means by grace. I don't think that's where the the division is once we properly define our terms i don't think that that's where the issue is uh the issue is on the nature of justification um that's really where it is but that is not synonymous with what is grace the nature of justification and what is grace are not the same thing you have to make a distinction there so i, I think that they're missing it here um and again the heart of what they're trying to preserve with the concept of grace is something that we Catholics can say we agree with you as Protestants. What you're the substance and the heart of what you're trying to preserve with this idea of not meriting God's favor, we agree with you, and yet we can still talk about merit done in grace post justification. Why is that? Well, because we agree with the heart of what you're trying to say, but whenever we speak and start making certain distinctions then we can start speaking about um, post-justification merit or initial justification um, merit. And that's really not what the Protestants are attacking whenever they speak about us trying to merit heaven. They're attacking a concept that we're saying that we're meriting heaven prior to justification and apart from grace. And that's certainly not what we're doing. So I, I think, again, it's a lot of this is misunderstandings on their part. It's also a deficient understanding of justification on their part. All right, we'll continue just a little bit longer. I'm glad you brought this up, Justin, because we really do have to define terms when we're witnessing the Roman Catholics. Exactly. Because every Catholic believes they're saved by grace through faith in Jesus. But the word alone becomes so important. Yes. Yeah, but we can say alone as well, but we're not going to mean by it what they're saying. I agree with that. But the problem is what they're saying is going to be the novel interpretation of the view that is just not historical or biblical. That's the problem. So a Catholic can speak about grace alone and faith alone, as Benedict XVI has noted. But yeah, what we mean by that is going to be little different than what they mean by that, except our understanding is the consistent one with Scripture and history. Theirs is the one that's novel. And, and that's a very good sign, the fact that it's novel, even conceptually and substantially it being novel. That's a good sign that it's not apostolic, that it's not from Jesus. Hey, you know what's ironic about that whole thing is that Martin Luther considered faith alone, but he considered baptism as part of faith alone. Like he just assumed like baptism was part of faith, you know, so I, he would disagree with Luther on that again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, they're, they're going to be inconsistent. Paragraph 2027 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church says that Catholics must merit all the graces necessary for salvation. Well, how and yet we can also say that, and, and by the way, that's not exactly what it says, but we can also no. <laughs> talk about how we unmerit, we don't merit the first grace 
of justification. Uh, why is it that we can say we don't merit the first grace of justification if what he is saying is true? Uh, which which paragraph of the catechism was that? Because I don't I don't think that twenty twenty seven. I can read it here if you want. Please go ahead because I, I don't think that it was says, here. It says no one can merit the initial grace, which is at the origin oh. of conversion. Isn't that, isn't that exactly what I just said? <laughs> yes, exactly. You know why? Moved because I've the, actually read the Council of Trent, which they have it. <laughs> moved by the Holy Spirit, we can merit for ourselves and for others all the graces needed to attain eternal life, as well as necessary temporal goods. Yeah, all the graces, and it's excluding, however, that initial justification, right? So it's talking about all subsequent graces, clearly contextually. What it is, is they just, I guess, read that second part and thought that that just meant um, maybe they didn't read the first part that mentions how we can't earn that first grace. Um, because after all, we're not Pelagians and we're not semi-Pelagians. So we, we would say, yeah, we can't merit those things. Maybe they just didn't read that first part, but you don't even have to go to the catechism. Just read the Council of Trent. It would line all this up for you and tell you all of this. So again, it just shows me that they, they haven't done their homework. And the merit, just so people know, it's not our merit. I think people, you know, kind of say that merit and good works are basically the same thing. If you do good works, you just get, you work your way to heaven. It's the same thing. That's how they see it. But mm -hmm. the uh, the merit that we earn or obtain has already been earned and obtained for us by Jesus Christ on the cross. So it's not, we don't need to obtain it on our own or reobtain it. We just <laughs> have to follow Christ and he gives us his grace. And in fact, the paragraph before 2026 says that the grace of the Holy Spirit is confer, can confer true merit on us. So it's the Holy Spirit who gives us this. We don't, you know, just take it for ourselves. And it's of course, not even strict merit, which is what they're assuming. There, there are so many exactly. strict merit context, context, and that's most certainly what we would exclude. We, we would not speak at all of because again, we're not Pelagians or semi-Pelagians, so we wouldn't maintain um, a notion of strict merit post-justification. I mean, at so no if we're time. We're going to define terms. Maybe you should define merit. Yeah, which of course wasn't wasn't done. Um, and I don't know if it's done in the rest of the video, but we're out of time. Maybe we could continue no, with not. the rest of it. But I, I doubt very seriously it's done in the rest of the video from the way this thing is going. Uh, give me some concluding thoughts here, though. Oh, my. So many concluding thoughts. Um, throughout the whole video, he talks about the Catholic Church went astray. The Catholic Church was evil. The Catholic Church corrupted the gospel. Thank God Martin Luther and the Reformers found a Bible. They got into God's Word. They read it for themselves. It set them free from the bondage of the evil Roman Catholicism, which had degraded and devolved into the doctrine of demons. And thankfully, they found the truth for themselves, except that within like a year, they couldn't even agree on what that truth was. And there's even a book called The 200 Different Definitions of uh, this is my body, meaning from the beginning of time, there was one definition of this is my body, <coughs> the Catholic definition. But then once the Protestant Reformation and everyone could interpret it for themselves, there were <coughs> a thousand, excuse me, allergy attack. Yeah, I've, I've <coughs> been dealing with allergies over here myself. Yeah, the last thing I just say is that, you know, they're saying that what he has is the truth. But really, what it amounts to is nothing more than his personal interpretation of the Bible, of what he thinks is the truth that doesn't match up to the Bible. 
doesn't match up to historic Christianity, and you have to ignore large chunks of the scriptures that say that it's not by faith alone, as in James 2.24, or we have to live out our faith, and that you're not saved once and for all as this man claims you can be. And later on in the video, quotes uh, 1 John 5.13, which says, you can know you have eternal life. But the word know in Greek there does not mean absolute insurance. And in fact, in I believe Acts chapter 25, Paul uses it in a way. He uses that exact same word, but it's not absolute assurance. So what he's teaching is, in fact, what he condemns. It's a new, it's a novel gospel. It was never heard of in the history of Christianity. It does not come down to us from Christ, and it is something that was invented over 1,500 years later. It's uh, certainly, from what I'm hearing so far, um, not the faith that I'm recognizing from the first millennium. But maybe again, he'll say, well, but you guys were corrupted in the first millennium. Okay, well, where was the true church in the first millennium? <laughs> where are the people who maintained what you maintained in the first millennium? And if you can't really back that up for me, well, you know, there's not a whole lot we can do at that point. Because if, if, if you're going to argue for a position that has no historical <laughs> evidence, I can come up with anything. I could just make up a religion today and say, oh, it's been there from day one. It's always been there. Well, where's your evidence? Well, I don't have to show you any evidence. It's been there from day one, though. The Church of Michael Often. It's always been there. If, if, that's <laughs> the level, gonna, uh... if that's the level of conversation that we're reduced to, probably not a whole lot that we could really do at that point. You know? You've um, convinced me. I'm either going to call uh, Michael himself, Gendron, or I'm going to call that guy, Justin. And I'm going to ask him this question because I'm sincerely curious. You know, I heard your video. You talked about the true church growing with the false church. Could you, who were these true church Christians? What were their names? You know, what centuries did they live in? I, I would love to like read their writings. So I would love to know what they have to say on this. I mean, well, you don't have to read their thing. writings because we have the New Testament. The New Testament backs us up and it shows that we're there from the first century. That's going to be their argument. And then I'm going to just come back and say, but yeah, I could say the same thing about the church that I just made up an hour ago or something like that. I could, I could yeah, also but they say said that the, church the New Testament there. agrees with me and my religion. And so everybody can say that. <laughs> So they said that, the church not, there. You yeah. can see it plainly. I want to know who they are. <laughs> right. Well, they, they're not going to want to do that. They're going to want to take it back to the New Testament, which is fine because I don't think the New Testament backs them up. So I don't have a problem going to the New Testament with them. But ultimately speaking, I'm going to say, but I would still like to see your interpretation of the New Testament somewhere historically. And if it's not there... It's just as novel to me as somebody else who comes along and gives me a Gnostic interpretation of the New Testament. Exactly. And that's been done for all of history. And well, let's talk about the New Testament. You know, where did it come from? How did mm. it get there? Protestants hate that question. <laughs> mm. Well, I sure haven't heard a satisfactory answer from them. But thank you so much, Brian, for coming on. Let's do another one where we uh, continue with this one or maybe a different video. I'd love to yeah. have you back on. Tell yeah, us yeah, about your channel. Great. Thanks. Yeah, please check out our Catholic Truth YouTube channel if you'd love uh, more debunkings like this. We have a ton of videos that debunk others. We just had a full live debate with a Protestant on this topic. Are we saved by faith alone? And can we know with absolute assurance that we are saved? And so we had a debate on this topic, which you can check out. Uh, also check out our Catholic Truth podcast, because we're going to be having a lot more conversion stories and podcasts and debates there as well. So uh, make sure to check out Catholic Truth.
Thanks for coming on, Brian. And everybody, thank y'all for watching. Hit that subscribe button and also check me out, patreon.com forward slash reason and theology if you want to support me. That's going to do it. See y'all later.